Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. How's everybody? All right. Praise God. It's good to be with you again this morning uh, and to share with you in the Adams um, series of lectures on preaching. And uh, let me just say what a treat it's been to, to be here and to be with each of you. Uh, Dr. Aiken had it right when he said that I love this school and love you. Uh, I can't think of a, a campus I would rather members of my own church to attend and study. And I can't think of a better place to get an education, not just in theology and Bible, but to get an education in uh, generosity and largeness of heart and warmth of spirit, for that's what pervades uh, this school. And so, so glad to be with you and to uh, come back again to God's word. I'm going to get us into God's word because, you know, anytime the, the moderator just sort of says, hey, this is the BD, come preach, what he's really doing is saying, you went over last time, I'm going to give you as much time as I can. And so let me, let me get us right to the subject this morning. And let me do that by asking you a question. If your definition of worship could only be based on what you see evangelical Christians doing as worship, what would your definition be? If your definition of worship can only be based on what you see evangelical Christians doing as worship, what would your definition be? If all we had is data with the lives of evangelical Christians, then it's most likely that worship would be defined as a combination, number one, of inward feeling and piety. Number two, attending the Sunday gathering of the church. Number three, listening to our favorite preachers, whether in person or on podcasts. And number four, a commitment, a personal commitment to quiet time. In other words, to most of the evangelical church, worship is what you feel, what you sing on Sunday, and how you take in God's word. To put another way, perhaps borrowing from a Roman Catholic critique and idea, evangelical worship has desacralized most of life. Because evangelicals have desacralized most of life, what we do in our workplaces, in our schools, at our dinner tables, and in the public square is largely thought of as something in addition to our personal relationship with Jesus and in addition to worship. Worship has come to be regarded as an experience rather than a life wholly dedicated to God through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. So as a consequence, some things God the Father regards as essential to the worship that he accepts, many Christians think very little about those things. And one thing that God regards as essential to worship that we think about very little as an aspect of worship, is justice. 
And this is why I've wanted to, in this series of lectures, think about preaching justice to the people of God. And in our first lecture on Tuesday, we thought about that theme from the Proverbs, what the good life entails. It entails, in part, a life dedicated to seeking justice. And yesterday in the Ph.D. colloquium, we thought about this from the Gospels, from the Gospel of Matthew in particular, what role justice plays in fulfilling the Great Commission. And this morning, I want us to return to the Old Testament, to the prophets, and to learn from the prophets what God thinks of worship when it includes or when it omits justice in the hearts and hands of his people. If you're taking notes this morning, I want us to ask and answer three questions. Number one, how does God think about himself? How does God think about himself? Number two, how does God think about worship? How does God think about worship? And number three, what does what God thinks about himself and think about worship, what does that mean for preaching? What applications and implications does that have for our preaching? Let me offer a word of prayer and we'll chase those questions. Father, we pray that you would quicken our minds this morning and soften our hearts and ready our hands so that we might think your thoughts after you, that we might desire, O Lord, what you desire and we might do your bidding in all the earth. We pray that in the power of your spirit this morning, you would use your word to that end, Lord, that you would instruct us, that you would motivate us, and that you would put us to work for your great glory and the joy of all peoples. Bless us, O Lord, as we think about these lofty things. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first question we want to take up and answer this morning is, how does God think about himself? In one sense, of course, that's what the whole Bible is about. It's a a disclosure, a revelation, an unveiling of God to himself and to his people. But in the prophets, we learn uh, some rather interesting things as it relates to our topic this morning. The first text I want to direct your attention to is Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. There the prophet has this to say, or rather the Lord speaking through the prophet. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Uh, To know God, according to Jeremiah, is a matter for great boasting. We're fools if we boast in our wisdom. We're puny people if we boast in our strength. We're really paupers if we boast in our money. God confounds human wisdom and and God makes 
the powerful to look weak by using the weak. And it's God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You'll never have more than he has. So we're fools if we boast in all of that. But, but there is one thing supremely worth boasting in, beloved, that we understand and know God himself. We should glory in that if we know God. We should delight in the personal knowledge of an infinite God. According to John 17, 3, it is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, which is the definition of eternal life. And those who know God should glory in him, should boast in him, should delight in him. However, to know and understand God means we have some information about his character and his ways in the world. If I should tell you about my best friend from high school, who we affectionately called Pooh, after Pooh Bear, if I should tell you he's about my height, but a, a more muscular build, and he's a soft-spoken and humble young man, intelligent, uh, kind. He was hanging with me, so you know he was cool. <laughs> you would know some things about him, but you wouldn't know him. To know him has to, we have to have an introduction. And to know him, you've got to observe those things about him in action. You've got to watch him be kind with people. You've got to watch him in the classroom and observe his intelligence. You've got to know something of his mercy with people and, and, that, and that pimp we used to walk with. You know? Then you may say, based on that knowledge, that you know him. And God says now to know him is something more than to know about him, that we know that he is the Lord, and as the Lord, we know what he practices. Notice there, he practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Let me put it in the negative. If you don't know this about God, then you don't know God. If you and I don't know that he is the Lord, ruler of all that there is, King of kings and Lord of lords, if we don't know that he practices steadfast love, if we don't know that he practices justice, if we don't know that he practices righteousness, notice not just on that final day when he completes justice and righteousness, but the text says in the earth. Right now in this life, then beloved, we don't know God. To understand and know God is to gladly accept and anticipate these things about him. I say gladly accept because God himself says, notice in verse 24, for in these things I delight. <laughs> Don't you know God is pleased with who he is? He likes himself. He doesn't suffer from low self-esteem. He practices in the earth love, justice, and righteousness, and he feels good about it. He delights in it. He's happy with it. So there can be no worship of God that God will accept that does not recognize who God is. In fact, the text says we must not only recognize these things about God, but we must boast or glory in them. They must be our delight too. It's no wonder that in the song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, the first thing that Moses sings about the character of God 
It's God's justice. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. I wish they had put the tune to that in the book so we could sing it the way Moses sang it. This aspect of God's character is cause for praise, beloved. Let me show you the same thing in a different text from a different prophet. So if you will, turn with me to Zephaniah. If you have to, go to the table of contents. Ain't no shame in that. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Here the prophet Zephaniah will speak in very similar ways as what we just read. Zephaniah 3, verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. Notice, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. Verse 5. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. Do you see? God may be surrounded by the godless and the oppressive and the treacherous. But every morning, each dawn, he makes his justice to shine forth. You can see God in the middle of that city telling that that faithless people of worship, step back, you in my shine. (laughs) He makes his glory to dawn every day upon the world. This is how God thinks of himself. And what he reveals to us. I think the references to in the earth in the previous text and every morning here are meant to help us understand that God's justice, beloved, is real. It's present. It comes with the morning sunrise. And as the sun runs its course, so the justice of God spreads across the earth. We need to understand that about our God and we will surely find ourselves compromising with injustice and unrighteousness and wickedness. So the most basic question we have to ask our people from Sunday to Sunday, if we're preachers, is do you know and understand who God is? Do you know what he delights in? Then we must line upon line, precept upon precept, preach and teach this aspect of God's character a character that has fallen from view in so much of the world today. God tells us that he is the Lord and that he is righteous and just and loving. But there's a second question for us to consider. How does God think about worship and justice according to the prophets? What what does he tell us about worship? Here's the answer in a nutshell. God hates and rejects any worship offering from people who do not do justice. God hates 
and rejects any worship offering from people who do not do justice. Micah chapter 6. Those well-known words. Verses 6 to 8. There God speaking through the prophet Micah has this to say to his people and to say to us. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to what? Do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We may be familiar with these well-known words. The prophet Micah teaches us that a variety of offerings, burnt offerings to the, even the offering of the firstborn child, will not really please God. The Lord will not be pleased, verse 7, with even thousands of rams and tens of thousands of rivers of oil. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that at best, these were shadows and types pointing to that one perfect sacrifice, which was to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. But at heart, what pleases God, what God requires of his people in worship is that we do justice. Love kindness and walk humbly with our God. In the Hebrew there, the, the word do in the Hebrew means do. <laughs> Two letter words are meaningful. <laughs> we do justice. We accomplish it. We complete it. We practice it. That's to be the manner of our lives. In other words, all the offerings in the world do not satisfy God if we are the kind of worshipers who fail to actually do what is right. Not talk about it, write about it, preach about it, sing about it, but do it. We're to put on our Nikes and just do it. But I said that God hates any attempts at worship from people who are unjust. To see that turn with me to Amos chapter 5. We see positively what he requires of us there in Micah chapter 6, but now we're going to see negatively what he, what he rejects, what he abhors, what he, what he hates. And Amos 5 is a powerful chapter where over and over again the prophet Amos tells the people to, to seek the Lord and live. They meant to repent of their sins and transgressions and to seek hard after God that they might live with and for God. See it there in verse 6, Amos 5, verse 6. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and, and devour it with none to quench it for Bethel. Verse 7, and this is why. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Skip with me to verse 10. They hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks the truth. Such is the case with fallen human culture. And 
those who don't truly know God. Verse 11, therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Verse 15, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. I'll come down to verse 21. God now speaks. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Verse 24, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. You read this chapter and you get the sense of two things at least. Number one, you get the sense of a religious people in danger of God's judgment breaking out against them because of their injustice. And number two, you get the sense of a desperate people trying with their various offerings to get the attention and approval of the God that they've angered. But the thing that catches God's eye, the thing that wins his attention and his approval is a turning of his people away from the sound of worship to the substance of worship, which includes justice. We get that image of verse 24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Imagine justice flowing from God through his people, as strong and as swift and as voluminous as the Mississippi or the Nile. We're meant to imagine justice overflowing the banks of that river flowing out into the, into the homes and the workplaces and the roadways of every place that stream flows. It must be said that this text has often been quoted to the evangelical church, but seldom practiced by the evangelical church. We will this April celebrate the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., and I'm afraid we may witness people who stood firmly opposed to Dr. King during his lifetime try now 50 years later to claim Dr. King's message and ministry as their own. We've even seen truck manufacturers issue Super Bowl commercials attempting to appropriate Dr. King's words in the service of car sales. This is one of Dr. King's off-quoted verses here in verse 24. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
But the evangelical church in King's day, and I fear in too many quarters in our day, turned a stony heart, a blind eye, a stopped up ear to this text. Evangelical pastors have to now preach justice because the evangelical church is not starting on neutral ground with this issue, beloved. The evangelical church is starting with a long history of injustice and complicity and guilt. We've had to have our hearts repaired ever since Whitfield decided that he could build orphanages using slave labor. We've had to have our hearts fixed ever since Edwards decided that he could write glorious tomes about the glory of God while himself owning slaves. This defect of injustice has been deep in the bloodstream of our churches. Even down, as I said, to a Dr. King. There are habits, beloved, of mind and life that have not been renewed by the word of God and must be lovingly confronted with the word of God. And change cannot be as simple as finding a couple of king quotes that you now like and putting them on Twitter. No, change must be as fresh and solid as hearing the Bible all over again call us to justice. And change must be as deep and consequential as genuine repentance that results in letting justice roll down like waters. Otherwise, beloved, we must come to think that God is not pleased with our songs, our quiet times, our offerings. God doesn't need those He satisfies with his son's sacrifice, not ours. What the Lord requires of us is that we do justice. And this is our reasonable act of worship as ones who claim to know a God who himself practices justice and righteousness and steadfast love. So we must hear the Lord speaking to us in his word about that worship which pleases him. Let's look at one other text, Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 2 draws this connection between uh, justice and the worship that pleases God. Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. This great evangelical prophet, as he's sometimes called, preaching boldly to the people of God. Verse 11, he begins this way. God speaking through the prophet, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, 
plead the widow's cause. It's a stunning passage. The Lord says things like, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. God literally says, look, I can't, I can't. (laughs) I just can't. And then he calls us in verses 16 and 17 to repentance and righteousness. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. That, of course, is done under the fountain of that blood that flows and cleanses under the blood of Christ. But where we have been cleansed and where we have now been indwelt by Christ, we are also meant to live like Christ. And so to learn to do good and to seek justice, to correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. One wonders how many of our spiritual offerings appear to God as burdensome and wearisome. Because we are full of the blood of indifference and injustice. One wonders if God cannot endure our gatherings. If he sees our public worship as a trampling of his courts. Because we've not yet washed ourselves, removed evil from before his eyes, and learned to do good, to seek justice, correct oppression, to bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. One wonders if our worship before God is lacking because we have sought only to be clean in an inward spiritual sense, but have not sought to express that purity in the outward works of goodness, justice, and mercy. See how active a part of our worship this is meant to be. He says, seek justice. It's it's to search for it like treasure. It is to hunt it like a hound. He says, correct oppression. In other words, take your stance against it. Make the crooked straight. Bring justice to the fatherless. Don't, Don't make them come looking for it. You be sure to take it to them. Plead the widow's cause. Open your mouth. Speak for the vulnerable. Take up their cause as your own. These are the worship requirements of the God who himself practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. He delights in these things. We, we cannot continue to come to him, praising him with our lips, if our hearts are not like his heart. The deepest worship occurs when the worshiper's heart and actions match more fully the heart and actions of God. The truest worship involves us becoming like the one we worship. It involves us learning that all of life is worship and all of life should be dedicated to what delights God. Steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. Of course, all that the prophets are speaking of here grows right up out of the law that God gave to that prophet Moses. We might sum it up this way in the words of Deuteronomy 16, 20, justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God has given you. Justice and only justice you shall follow. That's the worship that pleases God. And so then the question is, what does this mean for preaching? And here I want to give us five applications or implications for preaching. If God delights in his own just ways and he accepts the worship of a people who, like him, seek justice and correct oppression, what does that mean for our preaching? Number one, 
we must no longer give the impression that the greatest act in Christian worship is merely listening to a sermon. We must teach our people in our preaching and by our example that the greatest act of Christian worship is applying the sermon, applying the word of God in our lives. We must hear, yes, and we must preach. Preaching is vital. Preaching is absolutely essential. Preaching is rightly at the center of the worship of God in Christian spaces. But we must not be like the man who looks in the mirror of God's word and then turns away having forgotten what he saw. That kind of preaching and listening is very nearly worthless. No, we must look into the mirror of God's word until we mirror what's in God's word. That means we must hear and we must apply what thus saith the Lord. One of the things we must be dedicated to to in preaching and teaching is making plain the, the righteous character and the just character of God and his expectation that all of our lives will be include similar acts of righteousness and justice. If you're a preacher here this morning and you think carefully through your applications, maybe you use something like an application grid or a checklist or something, be sure that this category of application of doing justice, correcting oppression, seeking righteousness is regularly reflected in your preaching and in your instruction so that the people might come to understand the need to regularly apply it in their lives. A second thing this has to do for preaching. I think this means we must preach a conception of worship, as as we've been saying, that includes all of life. We cannot leave our people with the mistaken impression that worship is what we do on Sunday for a couple of hours. Our people must be taught a Romans 12, 1 and 2 notion of worship where we present our lives as a living sacrifice. And then they must further be taught that through our preaching, our example, that living sacrifices live to make sacrifices on behalf of God's agenda. God's agenda always includes righteousness and justice and mercy. So the Christian life, all of it, has in some way to reflect God's desire for his kingdom reign in the world. We need to represent God's view of justice in the workplace, in our recreational activity, in our purchasing decisions, and in our civic and political lives. Everything we do should be done in keeping with what is just and right and equitable. We need to recover the notion of vocation. And the notion that everything offered to God is holy. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 should be a touchstone. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, whether butcher or baker or candlestick maker. It's holy. A third thing this implies about preaching. We must preach a conception of worship that involves ethical demands and not merely emotional expression. We have preached so much to the heart and to private personal living 
And I fear we've created the impression that Christianity has nothing to say or do with social responsibilities. I think we've left people with the impression that Christianity is primarily about how I feel toward Jesus right now and how Jesus makes promises that I can hold on to and apply right now. Neither of which are wrong, but neither of which are the full truth either. That the word calls us to an expression, a working out of Christian ethics that include, as we've been saying, justice, correcting oppression, serving the widow and the orphan. I think it's the case that in evangelical churches we've inherited and spread a piety that is almost entirely inward. We've done that despite the fact that our Bibles tell us that religion that is pure and undefiled before God our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see, James 1.27 holds both things together. We keep ourselves unstained from the world. A vital holiness is absolutely imperative. But we also serve those in their affliction. We also care for widows and orphans. It's both parts together, not one part without the other. The demands of neighbor love, I'm afraid, beloved, are sometimes misty in the minds of too many Christians. The luster of the golden rule has been worn away in the sight of too many believers. It may not be that anyone would argue against neighbor love or against the golden rule. It may simply be that they haven't heard much about it since they were children. And they've come to think of it as childish. We cannot allow that to persist. We must thunder out the Lord's ethical requirements so that we truly do learn to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. A fourth thing. We must preach a conception of worship that connects what God loves about himself and loves to do in the world with what Christians love about themselves and love to do in the world. In other words, we want the hearts of our people to overlap the heart of God. We want the lives of our churches to mimic the the lives and the actions of God in the world. If God delights in justice and righteousness, then we should too. Our highest happiness, beloved, and our preaching should reflect this, Our highest happiness should be found in the things that make God happy. If our people never understand that justice makes God happy, then the pursuit of justice will likely and only feel like an imposition and a burden that gets in the way of their happiness. So we need to preach justice to the people of God Precisely for the happiness and the joy of the people of God. Just to be clear here, our motivation is not partisan and worldly. Our motivation in this, remember, our motivation in this is worship and godliness. And we have to keep in mind, I'm saying this because we, we do have this hearing impairment where any mention of justice seems to us to be something unbiblical and ungodly. And we need to correct for that. We need to want to do the things, these things, because God delights to do these things. 
And we need to want to do these things because this is the worship that still pleases God when it's offered through Christ who redeems us and lives in us. A fifth thing. We must preach justice in a way that helps our people understand that to do justice is consistent with, not contrary to, Jesus and the gospel. It is consistent with, not contrary to, Jesus and the gospel. So I want to conclude with three quick texts that connect the coming of the Savior with the execution of justice. We'll start in the first two in the prophets and we'll land in Matthew's gospel. The first is Jeremiah 23, verse 5. He repeats it again in Jeremiah 33, verse 15. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. The prophet Isaiah looks down through the corridors of time and anticipates a descendant of Jesse and a descendant of David, the righteous branch he's called here. He sees that when he comes, not only will he be called the righteous branch, but he will execute righteousness and justice in the land. Isaiah sees the same thing that Jeremiah saw. So if you want to flip to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. Isaiah also is thinking about this righteous branch and goes on to tell us about his ministry. Isaiah 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the fruit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is the Savior we were to expect if we were living in Isaiah's day. And this is the Savior who came into the world some 2,000 years ago. And the writers of the Gospels understood this. Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 to 20. Matthew quotes from Isaiah 42 in this passage, but he's picking up the, the same themes that this suffering servant, this righteous branch would indeed bring righteousness, not just be righteous. Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 to 20. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I'll put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Now we all have heard that part of the text, right? We love that part of the text. That's good news. Notice good news that follows it. Until he brings justice to victory. He's not going to crush us. He's not going to smoke us out. 
He's going to be tender toward us and he's going to care for us and keep us until justice is the rule and reign of the day. Until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Jesus is not contrary to justice. Jesus accomplishes justice. So beloved, perhaps you're here and you have told people that or suspected people that when they talk about justice, they must be liberals. Stop telling people in that frightened, conspiratorial tone and whisper that they're liberals, they're justice. You look like the hyenas on The Lion King. Remember when they were talking about Mufasa? Ooh. Say it again, say it again. Mufasa, ooh. You know. That's how some evangelicals are with the word liberal. You say liberal, ooh. Say it again, say it again, ooh. You know. It's ridiculous. <laughs> oh, beloved, a person is not a liberal because they care about justice. Now, the person you talk to might be a liberal, but it's not because they care about justice. Because if caring about justice makes a person liberal, then I'm here to tell you that God himself is a liberal. And you had better become one. We preach and we do justice because we wish to be like our Lord and we wish to see his righteousness fill the earth. The pursuit of justice and equity does not take us from the heart of our Savior. The pursuit of justice and equity takes us deeper into the heart of our Savior. If we know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, if we have been instructed by wisdom, and indeed if Christ has been made to be wisdom for us, then as the Proverbs say, we ought to understand justice completely. We ought to understand that doing justice is essential to that worship that pleases God our Father. So beloved, if you have the privilege of preaching, or if you're preparing for that privilege one day, preach the justice of God. Let it thunder from your pulpit. Let it rise up from your Bibles. Let it consume your people. Let them understand that this is what God is like in the world and those of us who are known by his name should look and act like him. And let them know that this word justice is not a word that belongs to some other theological camp. This is a Bible word. This is our word. And all those who love the scripture and who love the Lord of the word must love justice and must do it for the praise of his name. May the Lord give us grace to preach justice to the people of God and more than preach it, may he give us grace to do it for the glory of his name. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, if you were not a just God, all would be lost. If you were not a just God, there would be no confidence that righteousness would ever prevail. If you were not a just God, we would have no assurance that our cause, when we are afflicted and mistreated, would be set to right. If you are not a just God, there would be no redemption. For your word tells us that you are just and the justifier of those who believe in Christ. You are just in your dealing against the sins of men and you are just in your dealings in the affairs of men. 
And if we would know you, we must know that you are exactly that kind of Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. Help your church in this day of such confusion about what is right and good. Help your church to be a beacon of justice and a home for the righteous. Do this for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.